Let's go to our King in prayer together. Uh, Father, uh, we feel this, that our strength indeed is small. As we look at the events uh, in the world around us, shootings and natural disasters and wars and uh, plague, many other things, Father, we, we feel helpless against that. And so we turn to you, Father, you are the King. You are our hero, you're our savior, and so we ask that you would be at work. We ask for your guiding hand. We trust you. So we pray that we would be a people of faith and of trust, and also a people of compassion and of love and of great wisdom uh, with those around us. We pray for those that are sick and lonely here in our own church body, our own community. We know, Father, that and there are those that are uh, shut away from community, those that are uh, battling with chronic illness, um, depression, uh, so many difficult things. And Father, we trust you. You are the, the great physician. And would we be your hands and feet for them with a meal, uh, a kind word, um, opportunities, uh, Father, to love and care for those uh, who are in difficult times. We pray that you would be at work in them and in us. Now, what a, what a blessing uh, to see our youth up here today. And we think about all of the children, uh, even now, who are being ministered to, taught, and loved uh, down in our, our nursery and our children's wing. And we're grateful for all the volunteers, many, many in this room, who volunteer regularly uh, to care and love and teach and guide. Uh, would you continue that, Father, a passion uh, for those to be raised up uh, in you. And Father, we praise well for our missionaries. We think of uh, the men and women, the families that are spread across this globe, many in difficult places uh, for the sake of your kingdom, um, day in and day out, loving their neighbors, uh, teaching and uh, serving uh, for you and for your kingdom. We pray that you would give them a great encouragement and energy and strength as they continue to do your work. And would we do the same here, be mission-minded uh, in our grocery stores and our places of work and our neighborhoods. Uh, we know you call us to it, Father, and would you give us the strength for it. We're grateful that we get to be your servants in that way. And pray that in your name. Amen. A quick uh, update announcement for you. If you look here uh, to my left, we have uh, two rosebuds, uh, two births this week. Uh, Madeline Mariano, a daughter of Alan and Ellen, and Mabel Grace Martin, uh, daughter of Rob and Elizabeth. Uh, so if you see them, uh, encourage them and keep them uh, in your prayers as well. Our scripture reading is going to be from Judges 2. Uh, Haddon and Abby, two of the youth that were here uh, taking their vows, are going to come and read this. This is a wonderful summary of the book as a whole, as we see the way that God continues to raise up leaders for his people uh, and bring his people back to himself uh, as they confess. Hear now, hear now a reading from Judges chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. They shall become thorns in your side, and their God shall become a snare to you. 
As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of the Lord did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them to the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored about other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was the judge. And he, what, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord moved pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because, my, because this people have transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whenever they take care or walk in the way of the Lord, as their fathers did, or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Deaths in the biblical narrative are often major transition points for God's people. So if you've been journeying through scripture with us, you've seen this, that at the end of Genesis, uh, God's people are, are well and settled in Egypt, but then Joseph dies and Exodus begins with a new Pharaoh who rises up, who doesn't know Joseph and begins to enslave God's people. So major transition point. Moses rises up, but then Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy. And when Moses dies, Joshua comes into power, and Joshua's finally able to lead God's people into the promised land, another major transition point. And now we've gotten to the end of Joshua, and Joshua has died, and Judges begins, and the question is, how are God's people going to transition now? 
Which direction are they going to move in now? What, what major turning point are we going to see? And as we've read and seen, things go disastrously uh, very quickly. In, chap- in 2 verse 10 that we've read a couple of times already, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done in Israel. So what's gone wrong? What's gone wrong in this transition of leadership? Why have God's people abandoned the Lord? Uh, you might remember that in chapter one, we see kind of this recounting of the land that's left to be taken after Joshua has died, that the Israelites go in to take. In the first 18 verses, things are going great. They're taking the land, they're driving out the inhabitants, they're obeying God, they're doing everything he said. And then we get to verse 19 in chapter one, and the word but comes into play. Where chapter 1, verse 19 says, The Lord was with Judah, and they took the possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And this is a pattern we see the rest of the chapter. That God's people have some success in taking the land, but for various reasons, some excuses, some uh, cleverly devised plans that they come up with, they don't drive out all the people as God had so clearly commanded them to do. And we might read that and think, what's the big deal? I mean, they got most people out, right? Like they took control of the land. Do they really need to make refugees out of all these people? Does all this killing really need to happen? Do they really need to drive out every single last person? God, isn't this a little bit over the top? We think like that because we think God's telling them to drive them out as mostly a a military exercise to eliminate a military threat when what God is trying to do is to totally remove a spiritual cancer. So imagine you had a tumor and you were awake for the surgery. I don't know why you would be awake. Just imagine you were. And the doctor was taking out the tumor and he said, well, listen, lunch is coming up. I got about 80% of it. I think that'll be pretty good. I think like that's the majority, right? You'd be like, no, lunch can wait. Like, let's take out the whole thing. Spiritually speaking, this is what the Israelites did. They let the inhabitants hang around. They let their gods hang around. And the result we see in Judges 3, 5 to 6 is that the, so the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters gave their sons. And they served their gods. This cancer grows and manifests itself to that point that God's people have done exactly what God was fearful they would do if they didn't drive out all the people. So in the middle of those two sections is Judges chapter two. And here's what Judges chapter two does for us. Jeff already mentioned this, but it serves as a summary for the whole book of Judges. It's like when you visit a museum or a a historical landmark of some kind and you go into the little room and they show you the three minute video before you start, you know what I'm talking about? Last weekend, Jen and I went to San Francisco and we toured Alcatraz and on the ferry on the way over, it's like, hey, you're about to get lost and a lot of details and little signs and Al Capone and like the whole deal. Let us just give you a three minute summary of the island and the whole history and how we got here. And it sets your perspective. It allows you to see where you're going so you don't get lost in the details and wondering what's the overall picture of what's happening. Judges 2 does that for us. It gives us this summary. And the best way this can be described is as a cycle. 
that we see repeat over and over and over again. So here's how it plays out. It's going to be on the screen for you. The first thing we see is that Israel will commit sin, verse 12, and they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. So this complacency not to drive out all the people uh, from the land leads to spiritual compromise. God's people give themselves over to sin. Secondly, God allows Israel to be oppressed. Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. As a consequence for their sin, God allows these nations to rise up and oppress them third part of the cycle. Israel cries out to God. Verse 18, the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. This is, this word groaning is the same word we saw back in Exodus chapter two, when God's people are in slavery, that they cry out in this misery for God's mercy to come and deliver them from this position that they're in. And just like then God remains faithful and he answers their cry. Fourth stage, he sends a judge to deliver Israel when they cry out to him. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Now we think judges and we think gavel, black robe, big chair behind a desk making decisions, right? When you see judges, uh, think military deliverers. Men and one woman that God raised up to deliver God's people from oppression, mostly in a military sense. So God raises up these judges to deliver his people and he sends them to them. And then the last stage, we see that Israel is at peace while the judge lives. Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, but that never lasts. Verse 19, the cycle repeats, but whenever the judge died, They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. It's almost like when you were in elementary school and the teacher left the classroom. You remember that? And she would be like, hey, you've got to be on your best behavior. Here are the classroom rules on the wall that you all know. The one good kid in the front row, he's in charge, right? But as soon as the teacher leaves the room, what happens? Chaos. Like total chaos. This is what we see in the book of Judges. There's some peace while the judge lives, but as soon as the judge is gone, God's people go into chaos. Uh, But it's a lot worse than what you might have experienced in your elementary classroom. What we're going to experience in this book is some of the most dysfunctional, some of the most violent, some of the most terrible things that we see in all of Scripture an incredible low point for the people of God. See, what happens is, as this, as this cycle repeats that we just went through, God's people don't get back to a, a starting point that they always go. No, as they're cycling, they're also spiraling down. As the book goes on, God's people only get worse. Their sin only gets worse. Their cries for mercy get o- only weaker. The oppression gets only worse. If you think about even some of the judges themselves, the leaders that were delivered, uh, sent to deliver God's people, you think about Gideon, who's addicted to his own success and violently responds to this lack of respect that he's gotten that we've read about and kills his own people and ends his life making this idol for people to worship. 
You think about Jephthah, who doesn't understand the character of God and rashfully makes this military vow and sacrifices his own daughter, burns her at the stake. You think about Samson. Samson married a Philistine. He slept with a prostitute. I mean, just constantly, violently outbursting with anger. These are the men that God sent to deliver his people. And they're a representation of where the people are themselves. This is a brutal book. And so we have to ask the question, what in the world is it doing in our Bibles? Why is it here? What does it teach us? One commentator I read this week said, this, the subtitle of the book of Judges could be trashy tales about dysfunctional characters. Why is it here? I want to show you three things just very quickly that we learn from the book of Judges, specifically in chapter two. By the way, if you're looking for more help, I, I got a lot of what I want to say and a lot of help from uh, the commentary Judges for You by Tim Keller this week. It's a great resource that I'd recommend to you. But three things that Judges shows us. First of all, Judges shows us that God relentlessly gives grace to people who don't deserve it, desire it, or appreciate it. God relentlessly gives grace to people who don't deserve it, desire it, or appreciate it. If there is any message that pours out of the book of Judges, it's that God's grace lasts a lot longer and flows a lot more tirelessly than we could ever possibly expect. You get to the end of the book, and the last five chapters... We see four times that great refrain of the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Chapter 19 to 21, the end of the book, is the most shocking tale maybe in all of Scripture that you'll have to read for yourself of horrible sexual sin, of violence in response to it, and a civil war that erupts in Israel because of it. And then in the midst of that, there's a God who relentlessly gives grace to his people far past what we probably would expect he would do, far past the limits that we think we could push God to. But here's what we discover when we read scripture. It's easy to read scripture sometime and go, I want to look for the heroes. I want to look for the people to emulate. And we can do that. We can think judges is primarily this group of judges. Man, we should be like them. We should do what they do. But we read through this and we go, these guys are a mess. They're a total mess. They're a total disaster. There's nothing almost about their lives that I want to emulate. There's almost nothing that I want to be like. No judges and the Bible as a whole is not primarily a book of stories, a list of people for us to emulate. It's primarily this. It's a picture of a God who pursues us relentlessly and gives us grace when we don't deserve it, desire it, or appreciate it. That's what the book of Judges is all about. And isn't that good news for you and me? Isn't that good news that right where you sit this morning, you don't have to wonder, have I outsinned the grace of God? Have I gone too far this time? In this vicious cycle of sin in my own life, where I keep repeating the same horrible things over and over again, is this the point where God's finally gonna give up? No, in your life, God relentlessly gives grace to you. You don't deserve it. You don't desire it. You never appreciate it. And neither do I, but he gives it 
over and over and over again. I was thinking about that um, great hymn, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood, this week when I was thinking about this concept. What a picture of the grace of God. A fountain, ever flowing, filled with blood. I started thinking about a mission trip I went on, time, one, on one time to Wales. I don't know what it is about mission trips, but you get the worst showers possible. Have y'all experienced this? So we're on a mission trip. I think these are the first showers ever erected in the country of Wales, 1474. And I saw that in the boat on the way over. And, and they, they trickled down water, right? Like trickled water, which is a problem. But it was also cold water. The worst possible combination of things when you wake up early trying to serve the Lord, right, in Wales, and we're doing this thing. We get this trickle of cold water. I can remember one of our leaders would boil water on the stove and then go in the shower and pour it over his head just for that, like, momentary relief, right? But how many of us think of the grace of God like that? That God will ration it out just a little bit. You get a slow trickle. I'll cover you just enough. And then you're mostly on your own. Compare that to, uh, there was a room at Clemson called the Monsoon Room. Some of you who went to Clemson might have gone there. It was this um, concrete room in the middle of campus. I don't know how this stuff works. If you're an engineer, don't correct me. Just go with my story. It's something about where the air conditioners all all emptied. I don't know. And so you kind of make your way. You ignore a few no trespassing signs on the way. You go through a couple of locked doors. And you finally find your way into this small uh, concrete room with like a vent. And at first it seems like nothing's going to happen. And then you hear it. All of a sudden you're there with like your buddies in this room. And you can hear this overwhelming flood of water coming for you. And it goes from this moment where you're in total peace to you're like, you are not sure you're going to survive what's happening. It's drenching you from head to toe. You can scream as loud as you want to the person next to you. They cannot hear you. Brothers and sisters, that's the picture of the grace of God in Judges and throughout Scripture. That whatever you've walked in here with this morning, whatever happened in your past that you can't forgive yourself for, whatever cycle of sin that you're currently stuck in that you just can't kill, whatever guilt and shame... God relentlessly, tirelessly gives grace to people who don't deserve it, desire it, or appreciate it. My three-year-old daughter picked up my Bible yesterday morning because we're good parents and we teach our kids to read the Bible. And so she picked up my Bible yesterday and she said, um, God, uh, do you want me to tell you, Daddy, what do you want me to tell you? She does call me Neil sometimes. Daddy, do you want me to tell you uh, what God says? And I was like, Yeah. And she said, she flips open the Bible. She's bending the pages. I try to let it go. Uh, she said, you know, God uh, forgives us when we hit people. I'm like, like I am a good parent. Like this is working. And I'm like, yeah, he does. And then she said, you know, God also forgives us when we smile at people. And I was like, well, uh, okay. You know, 50-50. But I'm trying to correct that. And she says, and God gives us gummies. We're work, she's three. We're working on it, right? Well, you know what I thought? I thought this three-year-old, this childlike faith response to the Bible, she gets grace a lot better than we do. She gets that this word is a whole lot more about a God who relentlessly gives us grace despite our deserving of it than we ever possibly imagined.
that God gives it to us, he's a lot more patient with us than we are with ourselves. He's a lot more kind to us than we are to ourselves. Listen to what Dane Ortland says. He says he does not get flustered or frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. He went down into horror of death and plunged out the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. The second thing we see in the book of Judges is that God is jealous for love and lordship in every area of our lives. He is jealous for love and lordship in every, areas, every area of our lives. Going back to chapter one, it reads like a, a really well-crafted press release on war. The victories are highlighted. The non-victories are kind of explained away. So what you see in chapter one that we're not going to read through is that God's people will say things like this. Look, we tried really hard, but we just could not drive them out. We just couldn't do it. And God's response without fail is simply this. No, no, no. You would not drive them out. You could, you would not drive them out. And they say, well, listen, isn't it better if we keep them around as slaves, have a little free labor instead of just driving them totally out? disobedient to what God has called them to do, only half-heartedly obeying. And what, what this gives us is this picture of a people. And this cancer has spread. And what started to happen is they adopted the religious practices of the people that are inhabiting the land with them, which was basically this. It's fine for you to worship Yahweh. That's fine. But he's one God among many. Throw a little bale in there. Throw some other gods in there to meet your needs, to round out the picture. You want a well-diversified portfolio. So just add these things to your spiritual life. Just add them alongside God. Worship them alongside God. None of these gods demand total, total lordship over your life. How could Yahweh do the same thing? But the book of Judges makes it clear this kind of partial devotion to God will never work. It won't work. He wants total lordship. He's jealous for it. Total love in every part of our lives. And, and I want y'all to see, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. The biggest threat to your Christianity is not that you'll wake up tomorrow and be an atheist. The biggest threat is that subtly, imperceptibly, you'll allow other idols, other gods, to sit on the throne of your heart alongside God and serve them together. Allow them to coexist. And that slowly but surely, you've got this mixture. So here's the litmus test. What area of your life is God calling you to obedience? And like the Israelites, you're saying, I can't do it. But God's saying, no, 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 you won't do it. Is it God saying, I want the way you think about money and operate with money to be honestly a little bit painful, a little bit, something that requires faith and trust. And you say, I just can't do it. I can't follow you in that area. I can't go there. With your sexuality, is that the area of your life where God's commanding you to do something? You're saying, I can't do it. It's too restrictive. It's too hard. Is there someone in your life you need to forgive? And you say, I just can't forgive that one thing. I can't do it. Is there some temptation in your life, some sin that has got you caught in the, the cycle of its grips and you're saying, I just can't kill that one sin. What is it for you where you're saying, I can't do it and God's saying, no, you won't do it. 
That'll lead you to the idols if you work hard enough. That'll lead you to the idols that you're allowing to coexist alongside God in your heart. We do the same thing the Israelites do. How does God respond? He responds in anger. Look back at verse 12. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. We often think anger is the opposite of love. They can't coexist. They're opposite, polar opposites. Scripture shows us that, no, we have a jealous God, which means that anger is a natural byproduct of love. So imagine, imagine you're married, and you find out uh, that your spouse is cheating on you. They're having an affair with someone. And imagine your response when we confront you with that news is simply, ah, you win some, you lose some, right? No, we'd all go, oh, you don't love your spouse at all, right? No, the only response in that moment is righteous anger because you've made this exclusive commitment to someone who's gone after someone else. This is what we see with God. It's why over and over again in scripture, he's saying, I'm your bridegroom. We're in this exclusive, committed, loving relationship. And it's why we get this shocking, shocking language in verse 17, where God says the Israelites hoard after other gods. They prostituted after them. We think sin is no big deal. Sin is something I can keep separate. Sin is something I can uh, play with and keep in my life, and it's no big deal. God says, no, it's spiritual adultery. This is supposed to be an intimate, committed relationship, and you're whoring after other things. You're giving yourself to things, and that drives me to anger because I love you, and I want lordship and love in every area of your life. Isn't it amazing, by the way? Isn't it amazing that God knows that about us, and he marries us anyway? Imagine, I was at a wedding here yesterday. Imagine standing on this platform about to get married and you knew somehow that person was gonna cheat on you your whole life and you married them anyway. That's what God does with you. That he knows our adultery before it begins and he takes us anyway. He buys us anyway. He buys our freedom or he buys our forgiveness but he also purchases our freedom And so here's what this point teaches us. We have to also learn to fight. We have to learn to fight. We have to learn to kill those idols in our lives that we're allowing to coexist with God. Let me read you kind of a long quote from J.C. Ryle, but I think is worth reading. Listen to what he says. There is a vast quantity of religion current in the world, which is not true, genuine Christianity. It passes muster, it satisfies sleepy consciences, but it is not the authentic reality that called itself Christianity in the beginning. Thousands of men and women who call themselves Christians but have no fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and warring, they know literally nothing at all. The true Christian is not meant to live a life of religious ease, laziness, and security. He must never imagine for a moment that he can sleep and doze on the way to heaven. He must fight. It is a fight of absolute necessity. Let us not think that this, in this war we can remain neutral and sit still. It is utterly impossible in that conflict which concerns the soul. 
It is a fight of universal necessity. No rank or class or age can escape the battle. It is a fight of perpetual necessity. The Christian's warfare must unceasingly go on. The foe we have keeps no holidays, never slumbers, never sleeps. We must take comfort in our, about our souls if we know anything of the inward fight and conflict. It is evidence of that great work of sanctification. The child of God has two great marks about him. He may be known by his inner warfare as well as his inner peace. Here's what J.C. Ryle in Judges chapter 2 is teaching us. When you become a Christian, there are areas where you have pain, where you now have peace. No more condemnation. Your future is secure. You're loved and adopted and cared for. You had pain, now there's peace. But there's also places where you made peace, where you had peace, that there now needs to be pain. Things that have to be killed. Things that have to go. Things that have to be dealt with because God demands and is jealous for love and lordship in our lives. And the third point, very quickly, there's building tension between God's promises and our obedience. Look back at verses one to three. Verse one, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land and you shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. Here's a summary of what God's saying in those verses. I've sworn to give you this land, but I've also sworn not to give it to a disobedient people. Have you felt that tension in scripture? That God is constantly telling us to obey. He's constantly giving us this covenant that he says he's going to be faithful to. But at the same time, he says, you got to keep the commands. you got to be faithful to what I've called you to do. We feel this tension building all throughout scripture. And the book of Judges doesn't solve it for us. And so we read through the Old Testament and we kind of get caught. We're kind of like, well, what's true? Are the commands or is the promise, is the covenant conditional? Is it based on our obedience or is it unconditional based on God's faithfulness? What is it? Which one's going to win out? This is the tension that we're going to see as we read through scripture, building and building and building. Judges come and judges go. Kings will come and kings will go. Prophets will come and prophets will go. Every single one of them caught in the cycle of sin. Every single one of them adulterers giving themselves to idols. Every single one of them dying and this tension remains unresolved. But then comes another man. A man who never falls prey to the vicious cycle of sin. He possesses power over sin. A man who never, never gives himself to idols, but serves God alone. The ultimate judge, the ultimate deliverer that comes to give us peace, to deliver us from our oppressors. But he never gave in to death. He triumphed over death. So we've seen Joseph dies at the end of Genesis. Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy. Joshua dies at the end of Joshua. Judges come and judges die. But at the end of the gospel, gospels, Jesus comes and he's resurrected. Which shows us that what happened on the cross 
What happened on the cross was final and victorious, that we saw God's faithfulness to his covenant to us, that the obedience of Christ was given to us on the cross. And we also saw that the unconditional promises were met in Jesus, that he fulfilled every one of them for us, giving us his perfect righteousness. And the tension is resolved at the cross by the man who comes and dies, but is raised again. Second Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Don't you see it? This great tension of the book of Judges, are the, are the promises conditional or unconditional? Yes. And it's resolved at the cross. Jesus does it all. Let's end with this quote from Sally Lloyd-Jones from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a faraway country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing puzzle, piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see the beautiful picture. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for this picture that we get in Judges chapter 2 of people like us, disastrous people, total, total messes of people who can't get it right. And what do we learn? We learn that there's a God who relentlessly pursues us all throughout our stories, and that ultimately, Jesus, you have come, you have died. You have risen again to be victorious over our sin, meeting all the conditional promises of the law for us. And you've given us your righteousness so that we can now have peace where we once had pain, but God also give us the fight, the desire to make pain where we have peace with our sin. We want to keep following you, keep loving you. Give us the strength and courage that we need to do it. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.